Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. My name is Kristen Harcourt. I'm an executive coach and professional speaker. I created this show to speak with progressive CEOs, strategic HR leaders, and forward-thinking experts who are passionate about leadership development and creating positive workplaces. Um, I'm excited for today's guest because I think some people at first might be like, Hmm, with kind of the controversial way he, he starts with his book, but I think it's a, it's a really important topic and I'm really interested to hear more. So I am going to be speaking today with Dr. Gleb Sapersky. Hopefully I didn't butcher it. I'm trying. Um, Gleb is, a, was a, is the CEO of Disaster Avoidance Experts. He's a best-selling author, speaker, and trainer. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Kristen. It's a pleasure to be on. I'm so glad. I, I always like to start with my guests by asking them, when you hear of inspirational leadership, what does that mean to you? I think of leadership that helps other folks achieve their goal. So an inspirational leader to me is one who helps lead other people to achieving their own goals. And that is what I think of when I think of inspirational leadership. Hmm. And when you think about helping others to achieve their goals, because I think it's important that as a leader, you're serving others and helping them yes. to do their best work. What are, what are you, from your perspective, what are some of those behaviors that are critical to be able to help people and, and be effective at getting them to achieve their goals? Well, what I often notice with people is that they don't know exactly how to make the right decisions that will lead them toward achieving their goals. They think they know how to make decisions, but unfortunately we're all taught the wrong ways to make decisions and we kind of screw up when we make our decisions. So an inspirational leader helps others understand how to make the kind of decisions, follow the kind of strategies, follow the kind of tactics in the moment strategies more broadly that will actually lead the, those they inspire to achieve their goals. Right. That's, that's great. And I think it's um, exactly where I want to go with you. So you have a, a new book out, um, just released, was it in November? That's exactly right. Okay, cool. So a new book in November, and I want to make sure I say the entire title. So never go with your guts, how pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters. So I think that's very connective, connected with where you just went right now. Um, so tell me a little bit around when we when we think about uh, never go with your guts, and I'm, I tend to be not an all or nothing person. That there's some times where it might make sense, but I think there's a lot of times where people might be going with their gut, and it's not advisable. So, mm -hmm. so talk to me around why you feel feel this is so important, and and what are some of those challenges? Well, because so many people tell others to go with their gut. This is the most typical decision-making advice in business and other life areas, and it's horrible advice from what the research research shows us. My background is in cognitive neuroscience and behavioral economics, which means so I went to academia. I studied this topic for over 15 years in academia, how our brain actually works and causes us to make certain decisions. And what the recent research on this topic shows is that when we feel a certain way, which, what is a gut? What, what, what does it mean to go with your gut? It means go with what you feel, go with your instincts, go with your intuition, go with what feels right. Unfortunately, our feelings are very often going to lead us in exactly the wrong directions because our feelings are actually not adapted for the modern business environment. They're adapted for the savannah environment. When we were hunters and gatherers in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people, that's what our feelings are really adapted for. 
they're the older they come from the older part of our brain the amygdala and that part of the brain is really not adapted for the modern environment so we make a lot of dangerous mistakes called cognitive biases when we let our feelings drive us to make the wrong decisions and that's why i say you should never go with your gut sometimes your gut will be right sometimes it will be wrong but you should always check with your head first before deciding whether to go with your feelings or not because so often they lead us in the wrong directions there are many examples i can give of how business leaders really get themselves in a very bad position by going with their feelings I think I would love for you to actually expand on that, um, Glad, because I think um, there are times where when we're, when we're thinking about intuition, it might be around um, if you want to do something uh, related to your passion and you want to go in this direction or that direction, it's uh, taking some time, taking some space, and then seeing what feels right for you. But mm -hmm. um, I, I truly understand when we start thinking about in a business context and really important decisions are being made, um, when, when the facts are not being looked at, it, it can be detrimental. Um, but I think it's important for you to even start off by helping us understand um, what are cognitive biases? Cognitive biases are the decision-making errors that happen to us when we simply let our emotions lead us into making decisions. Now, what the research on this topic shows is that our emotions actually determine about 80 to 90% of our decisions just flat out, just like when we let our emotions lead, when we go naturally into wherever we're going, our emotions determine 80 to 90% of our decisions. And because of these dangerous cognitive biases, these are the ways of describing the kinds of ways specific ways that our decisions tend to go wrong. So for example, in my book, I have a chapter seven, which is an assessment on cognitive biases. So the whole book goes for the 30 most dangerous cognitive biases for business leaders and professionals at all sorts, at all sorts of positions and how they can address them in their careers and their business, their organizations and so on. Now, mm -hmm. in chapter seven, there's an assessment that helps you see the kind of specific behaviors that are associated with cognitive biases. For example, the first question asks, over the past year, what percentage of projects in your workplace that you have observed personally have gone over time and or over budget? And when I ask this in a training for executives, I do trainings for executives pretty frequently, so I get answers ranging from 5% all the way to a recent training where someone said 98%. And you know, when you have 5% going over time or over budget, unless they're huge projects, not a big deal. You know, 10% going over budget, not a big deal. But you get to that 98% level, that's a huge deal. <laughs> that's a huge problem because, of course, then you're misusing uh, your resources. Mm -hmm. You're thinking your resources will go into one project and then they're actually going to another project. I was actually working with a company, heavy manufacturing company in Pittsburgh that had this sort of problem, which is called the planning fallacy. Mm -hmm. And that's one out of we have over 100 cognitive biases, which people can check out on list of cognitive biases in Wikipedia. And like I said, my book goes for the 30 most dangerous ones. So the planning fallacy is where we tend to be very confident about our plans and we feel good about our plans. So intuitively, we think that our plans will come true. Mm. So this heavy manufacturing company in Pittsburgh really fell into the planning fallacy often. When they would bid on a project and they had you know, projects in a couple of millions, so they'd say, you know, it'll take me two million to finish a project, it would actually take them three million to finish a project. Right. They would bid five million and would cost them seven million. So they were seriously eating into their profit margins and sometimes even losing money on the project. Right. And when I examined what was going 
on. They asked me to come in. The, the, the COO heard me at a presentation for Vistage, peer executive group, asked me to come in. What I found was that they were not looking at the project and what went wrong in the previous project. So, you know, so if it took them 3 million, they obviously ran into some unanticipated difficulties mm -hmm. and they didn't take the time to examine what went wrong, mm -hmm. what kind of problems they went into. You know, when they said 5 million, took them 7 million, same thing. They didn't look at what went wrong. They just went ahead into the next project and into mm -hmm. the next project, into the next project and kept, you know, cutting into their profit margins and losing money. So what we instituted instead was a process where they made sure to look back at all of their past projects at each project, see what went wrong in each one and evaluate it, examine it. Now it takes time to work on the business as opposed to working in the business. It takes time to look at the project and see what went wrong, but they were able to fix both fix a lot of errors that they didn't realize they were systematically making in projects and they were able to make their next bids much more accurate. So in the future, if they bid 3 million, it would cost them you know, 3.3 million or something like that. If they build 5 million, it would cost them five or a little bit above that. And you know what? Their bids weren't the lowest bids, but when they wrote into the project, say into the project saying, hey, this is what tends to go wrong with these sorts of bids, with these sorts of projects. And here's how I have fixed these problems in the past so you can be confident that I will actually do this work at the approximately the price that I say, then even though their bids weren't the lowest, they tended to get accepted quite a bit more because the people who they were bidding on projects with were more confident that they would actually do the job well. Mm. Wow, a, a couple of really important distinctions I think you shared there. And it, it, you know, at first when you were saying it, I was very surprised. But now when I think about the companies that I work with, I'm not surprised that how often they go from one project to the next project and not taking that time to like really reflect and see what went well, what didn't go well. Um, unanticipated issues and all of that kind of stuff. So then they start to see those patterns and, and change them for the, for the next time. Um, such a great example. Uh, can you think of some leaders that, um, that you've been working with that have kind of got, taken the switch that they used to be really going all the other way with their guts and mm -hmm. now they've really shift, shifted it and used your philosophy um, and, and what are some of the impacts they're noticing just as a leader in their day-to-day, -day, what starts to feel different? Yes, of course. So I gave the example of this company with a planning file. So let me give another one. So I was working with a company here in Columbus, Ohio, where I'm based, Go Bucks. <laughs> That's, uh, they allowed me to talk about their work because they gave me a testimonial. So it's called the Edison Welding Institute. It's for an institute of heavy welding engineers. They have a consulting company of about 200 engineers who come in and help other heavy manufacturers address projects that those heavy manufacturers, their engineers can't address effectively. So these heavy engineers, one of, their, one of the things that the company wanted them to do a couple of years ago was improve the way that these engineers were conveying the skills and abilities of Edison Welding Institute to other engineers, because that's mm -hmm. kind of the way they market their ability to do this work, right? Okay. So they wanted the engineers to write more blogs, do more white papers, do more conference presentations, stuff like this. Now, the engineers weren't really interested in this sort of stuff. They liked working on their technical problems and weren't really interested in actually working on this sort of marketing stuff. And the company HR 
gave them training, tried to convince them to do it, and they weren't working on it. And they thought, well, are these engineers lazy? Are they incompetent? What's up? So uh, the HR manager, the HRVP, Mark Madsen, knew me. He want, he brought me in to work on this issue. And so I talked to a number of engineers, did some interviews, looked at focus groups, and I came back to Mark and said, hey, Mark, do you realize that you're not really emotionally motivating these engineers to do the this new work and mark looked at me and he said engineers have emotions <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly literally what he said i mean he has, says it in his testimonial uh, and that's a cognitive bias called the empathy gap where we greatly underestimate how important emotions are in motivating other people yeah. they look mostly at money rational factors thought logic and so on they don't look at emotions mm -hmm. and these engineers just were disinclined emotionally they really were fascinated with the technical problems and they were instead they weren't inclined to do blogs white papers conference presentations so we looked at what emotional factors could we tap to motivate these engineers and it turned out that what we could tap was reputation among their peers. Mm. And the reputation among their peers was something we can influence and show them that, hey, you'll get higher reputation among your peers inside and outside the company if you do white papers, if you do blogs, if you do conference presentations. We also changed the way that engineers were publicly praised and promoted so that we changed what they were praised for in their you know, engineer of the month sort of thing who, and uh, who were promoted and praised in the company newsletter, so reputational factors. And the promotional structure of the who was promoted higher was changed to include more marketing activities. As a result of that, engineers were much more willing to do white blogs, papers, and conference presentations. And just as importantly, from a systematic perspective, Mark and other leaders of the company were much more able to work effectively with our engineers in terms of employee motivation. Now, we in the United States have a huge crisis of employee motivation engagement. The latest Gallup polls show that only 34% of employees are in, actively engaged with their work, which means they take initiative, they actually try to solve problems, you know, the kind of employee you want to have. Most people, the large majority, are just putting in the time. They're just coming in, you know, just doing the bare minimum that it takes to not get fired and then leaving. And uh, there, there is a certain percentage, I think about a fifth, if, according to the latest polls, who are actively disengaged, meaning that they are looking for a new job and bad-mouthing their company to others. <laughs> so if you only have 34% of people who are emotionally invested in the work, then you're getting much less work out of, uh, out of your staff than you could be. And so that's what was happening here at EWI and now with this realization of how important emotions are they were much more able to get their engineers to be productive and to do the things that are actually important for the company's survival and success. Mm. Wonderful um, as somebody who's married to an engineer um, I, I laughed <laughs> okay. as you were speaking um, but I think it, it's, it's really important I do a lot of work in emotional intelligence and mm. Of course, we all have emotions. Of course, we're all emotionally connected to things. I think that it's um, sometimes being aware of what that looks like. It's different for each of us. And mm -hmm. I, I like how you went in there and um, really got a, a feel for what would make them feel more motivated by it. Um, the other thing that I, I'm thinking of as you're talking about this, Gleb, you, you know, I, I, we think about from a leadership development perspective. 
and going into organizations and, and making some changes in, in this area so that um, people are being more um, aware of looking at the facts when they're making decisions. Where, where can an organiz organization start? Because I know they're not going to be able to do everything, but what would be, uh, what are some ways that they could start to help their leaders be more confident in this area? So what they would want to do to start their lead to help their leaders be more competent is help their leaders notice when the leaders are ignoring negative information. That has been, I think, the biggest, the biggest problem that I've seen in companies. There was a really interesting study done on 1,087 board members of 283 companies that fired their chief executive officers and what these of they were asked why they fired the chief executive officers and a top five reason 23 percent of the ceos were fired for denialism now denialism in this case meant actively ignoring negative facts about reality about the reality of the company they were thinking you know and saying everything is hunky-dory everything is great when you know boards of directors were clearly seeing it's not <laughs> you know i mean a classic example that's very prominent right now is Dennis Millenberg, who is the who was the CEO of Boeing and until he was fired in December. So look what happened with the 737 Max when it was grounded. I mean, there's a whole backstory behind why it was grounded, which we can go into. But look at what happened after it was grounded. Now, when Dennis Millenberg first said that it would be it was grounded in March, that it would be flying in May of uh, 2019 <laughs> then when it was pretty clear when it became you know late april he said well it'll be flying in july then when that didn't happen he said it'll be flying in september <laughs> and then when that didn't happen he said it'll be flying in december and that when that didn't happen he said it would be flying in march and the board of directors fired him and they explicitly said they fired him one of the major reasons was that his excessively optimistic estimates of <laughs> what was going to happen with the 737 MAX being not ungrounded. <laughs> so that's a very classical mistake. And he was looking at all the positive factors mm -hmm. and ignoring so many negative factors. Mm. And this is the leader of one of America's top companies, <laughs> one of America's biggest companies, most important power companies. It happens so much more often and so much more frequently at lower level companies. You know, companies I work with, I see it all the time, people ignoring negative information about the company, uh, having a company culture where negative information, people who bring negative information to the top are punished, as happened in Boeing yeah. and happened in other companies because they don't, leaders don't want to hear this negative information. They want, it's pleasant for them to think that everything is good. Even when they don't intentionally punish these people, it happens. These people are the ones who aren't promoted. These people are the ones who are not uplifted into the higher ranks. And so the good people leave as a result of it. If you don't deliberately establish a culture where they're supported and praised and uplifted for providing negative information to the top and how many people actually do that. <laughs> so that is a big, big problem that I often see. And the, there are two cognitive biases here. One called the confirmation bias, where we tend to look for information that confirms our beliefs, mm -hmm. like the idea that the 737 Max will fly tomorrow <laughs> and ignore information that doesn't confirm our beliefs. And the mom effect, it's another cognitive bias where people, we unconsciously or sometimes consciously punish people who bring us negative information. 
And so that's the, creates a mom culture in the organization. Yeah, I mean, it brings up a couple of things for me as you talk about that. One is, you, you mean, you don't, you want to have a culture of trust and psychological safety where people yes. do feel that it's um, safe to be able to share and that something is going to be done with what they shared. And I, I like where you went as well to explain it doesn't necessarily mean that that person's fired. There's other ways where they're blocked because mm -hmm. they have come um, with information. Um, the other thing that was striking me as you were saying that is, um, it feels a little bit connected to um, with emotional intelligence. Sometimes it's looking at somebody's uh, score on reality testing, right? Sometimes <laughs> they, but it's even their awareness. Like they could even put themselves high <laughs> for reality testing because they're not even aware how much they're, they're operating with these unconscious biases. So um, yeah, I, I, I see that as being, and you know, it's, it's too bad because it's the whole thing. It always it re reminds me as well when we think of innovation and creativity. Um, I'll hear so many companies say, oh yeah, yeah, no, we're for that, we're for that. And then we, I'll say, well, you know, there could be a lot of, there's gonna be some failures in the innovation and creativity. And then you learn through those failures. Uh, and and so, so many times the organizations, they say one thing, but do another. Yep. Yes, this is one of the reasons why entrepreneurs, people who try to innovate within an enterprise, very often are shut down or they're directed into incremental improvements. Yeah. So stuff that's not going to be a huge major breakthrough in the next category changer and why companies have to buy others that are actually innovators and they buy these innovative companies. They have a lot of trouble developing them inside the company because there's such a low tolerance for failure. Mm, mm, yeah, absolutely. And what have you noticed uh, in terms of appetites in organizations when you're talking about this work? Are, are companies getting it? What are some of the resistance you might get? Well, the companies that are bringing me in are getting it. So that's kind of the, <laughs> the nature of the beast that if they're not interested, they won't bring me in. So the kind of companies that I see are getting it are, I mentioned manufacturing companies. So those are work with often financial companies are pretty good at it because they tend to be more numbers oriented and it's much more easy to measure the impact of these sorts of things. And they know they, uh, there, there was an interesting study by a large bank, which I won't name recently, which looked at its investors, financial investors in the stock market. And so which ones were doing the best of its investors and found that the investors who were doing the best were the investors who were a dead or b forgot about their investments <laughs> <laughs> yes now the day traders were not doing well so they understand that these gut reactions are often harmful so financial companies health and pharma companies are also ones that understand because they appreciate the research basis of this stuff nonprofits as well you might be surprised about that but nonprofits are do a lot of evaluation impact evaluation so they mm -hmm. see the numbers quite often so those are companies with which i've uh, technology companies those tech companies do quite a bit of this as well because they're analytical so those are companies where things resonate unfortunately there are other companies with you know, retail companies for example i found hard going because there's much more people who want to go their gut or let's say the sales department in a company mm. that has been not a good uh, place for me to work with because there's so many salespeople who are just very gut oriented mm. and very way too optimistic about their ability to do sales and uh, that's it's a struggle to mm. help them realize that even if they feel a sale will be made it will very often not be made <laughs> 
Yeah. And you know what? It's a little bit too bad. It's actually to their detriment because if you think mm-hmm. about something like sales, um, if, if they actually took a step back, just like you were talking about with the other one where um, the organizations were actually looking after a project, what didn't go well? Well, if you're now working with a salesperson and start to look at why did this sale not go? Why did this sale work? What, what was going on differently with that one? Now they can start to see all the facts and patterns and be able to make some changes around some of the ways they're approaching it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, think where, I think where there tends to be a resistance is when they're feeling like it's an either or. It doesn't mean that you have to never mm-hmm. <laughs> listen to what's, what, what you're feeling, but you're also going to have a whole process that you're following as well to mm-hmm. almost like double check, like to check yes. that. Is this actually mm-hmm. supporting what you're saying or you want this to be right, but actually the, all of the supporting documentation are actually saying that this is not the case. Yeah, and it's partially the the problem that I see is that people who are very, there's the the phrase, sometimes wrong, but never in doubt. (laughs) Unfortunately, those are the people who are seen as confident and they tend to rise to the top because people like confident leaders, whereas, and they don't intuitively like leaders who are actually the best decision makers, those who take the time to exhibit some humility and invite some constructive critical feedback and have an actual discussion, Mm -hmm. listen to other people's perspectives. Those are traits that are not associated with the alpha monkey male dominance, which the tribal savannah has taught us and to feel is the right leader. And unfortunately, people too often make their judgments about who is a good leader based on their feelings rather than on their thoughts. So that is a big problem that I see in companies. And you can very clearly see that confident leaders make much worse decisions than those who are less confident. So for example, we have a lot of research showing that overconfident leaders tend to greatly overpay for companies in mergers and acquisitions compared to what the company is worth. And their mergers and acquisitions tend to fail at a much higher rate, Mm. meaning that after the fact, the company will be combined companies will be worth quite a bit less than the companies before they merged. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I think what I would like to see more of with leaders is what you're bringing up here with these skills, but then also having the emotional intelligence mixed with that, right? So um, it's Mm -hmm. one thing to be making decisions by, by that. I think sometimes... Um, people see the charismatic and confident leaders as being a certain kind of individual, but it's what I would like to see someone who's using the skills that you're mentioning here, um, but they're also doing their own, whatever their personal development needs to look like so that they're learning how to connect effectively with the people they're supporting. Because mm-hmm. my experience is if you have a leader that um, that cares about you, where you feel seen and heard, <laughs> that is checking in with you, um, is, is, as you said at the very beginning of the show, that is invested in your goals mm-hmm. and having conversations around that, that's where I think it's the, the, the overall, you can get someone who's gonna be effective at their job, but also effective at connecting with the humans they're supporting. Well, it's very important to be effective at connecting with people. That's uh, the second example that I was giving at Mark Madsen. That's a classical example of where there's an ignorance of emotions. There's a not really considering other people's emotions, whatever. Those emotions are incredibly intelligent. What I'm talking about here is very much underpinned by emotional intelligence as a skill. You have to understand other people's emotions and you have to understand your own emotions and be able to effectively mesh the two for a mutual collaboration and effectiveness within an organization. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, it's a really good combination. And I, I hope more organizations who are listening to this podcast um, will be consider this and, and have a look at your book. Um, so, so glad, but I always like to um, have my guests as we're closing off to leave with a final thought. What would be a final thought that you would like to leave with our audience? It's very important to distance yourself from your emotions when you're making a decision because your emotions will very often lead you astray. Again, sometimes your gut will be right, sometimes it will be wrong, but the, you always need to check with your head about any decision that you actually don't want to screw up. So follow these simple counter but counterintuitive strategies that I've outlined here in order to make sure that you minimize risks and maximize rewards for your business and you're an effective leader going forward. Wonderful words of advice. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Kristen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.